Welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Jolie and I'm joined today by Althea and Chloe. So today we have Chloe, who is a final year PhD student, talking about her PhD on the ethics of artificial wombs. Which, first, would you like to tell our um, listeners what an artificial womb is? So, um, broadly speaking, and there are all sorts of different animal models run by different teams in different parts of the world, but broadly speaking, they are uh, liquid systems that are designed to emulate the conditions of the human uterus such that a, um, a human entity can continue to gestate um, outside of a womb. Um, primarily, they are intended as basically a really good alternative to neonatal intensive care. At the moment, there are real limitations to what we can do when babies are born prematurely, mostly because there are all sorts of complications associated with neonatal intensive care. Things like damage caused by ventilators, infections caused by feeding tubes, all sorts of things. So the thought is, hold on, if there are limitations to to those things, what would happen if we stopped trying to make those processes better, given that infection keeps on happening, lungs keep on not being able to sustain premature babies? Why don't we try and copy what we know works so well? Like gestation works really well, it grows babies to fruition. So why don't we try and copy those processes? And that's what scientists are trying to do. And my job is mostly to sit around and think about what they're doing from an ethical and and legal perspective, as I'm primarily a lawyer. And so what would some of those ethical issues be? I mean, some that come to mind would be using it not for neonatal intensive care, but for growing embryos for for scientific research. And so then you would have a lot of ethics about human life. When does it begin? Are there others? Which are you working on? It's actually interesting you bring that up because the vast majority of the bioethical and legal scholarship focuses on, ah, this is amazing, we can grow babies from scratch. And the science is quite clear that that's probably not going to be possible, like at Mm -hmm. least with the kinds of technologies scientists are trying to develop now, mostly because a subject of the technology needs to have some kind of fetal physiology, so already have a developed heart um, in order for the system to work. So what I find quite interesting in a lot of thinking I've been doing with co-authors and also in my PhD is about legal speculation and where it's a good idea to start thinking about ethical questions before technology does and doesn't exist. So one of the things I've decided not to think about is growing embryos from scratch and I focus very much on neonatal intensive care mostly because some of the questions you raised apply there too and we don't think about them as much even though they're far more imminent so for example you asked when does life begin I think a really important question is what is birth right because we think about it all the time as just being born, like you're, you're delivered um, by your mum, who does a great job. By the way, guys, send your mum flowers on your birthday. She did the hard work. But that is what we think about as birth, and it's just one thing. When actually, I've argued that birth is two things, and we, we forget that because they normally happen at the same time. So birth is emerging into the external environment, as in literally being born from your mother. But secondly, it's making all the physiological adaptations necessary for an independent existence. So, for example, Kate Greasley's done some great work on this as well. And she says, fluid drains from your lungs and your digestive system turns on and stuff like that. So if a entity is in an artificial womb and it's been delivered from a pregnant person to get there, 
it's born in one sense, but not in another. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean for the definition of legally alive human being? Where does that fit? Is that new? I say it is. Other people disagree with me. Yeah, yeah it, do- it does make a lot of the traditional arguments about when does life begin, where you have on one end conception, on the other birth. But now, if there's a way that birth, we don't know what this means anymore, that brings a lot of interesting questions up. Yeah, I mean, I find it fascinating. It does hurt my head sometimes, though. You're suddenly thinking about something that has to have rights whilst it's in the womb, or yeah. the artificial womb, yeah. and that raises additional questions because one of the big arguments where they try to restrict abortion rights is we can now keep something alive as early as X number of weeks, therefore we should not allow abortion after that point because it's a living being. So I can see it raises a lot of complex ethical problems. It's so interesting you raised that point, actually. I think it's so fascinating to me that we always use the idea of alternatives to limit pregnant people's rights. And why do we use the fact that a human entity can survive if it happened to be external from somebody to limit that person's rights at that time, given that there's no guarantee that it could survive and also it is inside another human being who has rights and and thoughts and feelings and ideas and about what they want their life to be like. And I, I find that idea strange. Abortion is definitely one of the big things that people try to to talk about with artificial wombs. And I think it's really important we remember that a good good conceptually distinct, but very good alternative to neonatal intensive care isn't an alternative to abortion. That. (laughs) Rant. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm with you there. You're you're sounding like, I know that um, the notorious RBG herself has been fighting against the... Um, the current abortion laws that are going Yeah, through. I mean, it's um, really quite scary that right now there is a uh, an abortion case being heard by the Supreme Court for the first time quite a while. But what's freaking me out about it so much is that it's very similar to another case that happened a few years ago. So there were grounds, really, in my opinion, for them to throw it straight out. And it, it worries me a lot that they are hearing that right now. We live in scary times. So uh, one of the things that really interests me is that while you come from a humanities perspective, you're very much dealing with frontline science. And and certainly when I, I was reading some of the, the work that you, that you had published, uh, and they're saying, well, this sounds like a, sci- a sci-fi movie. Exciting, challenging, because you're working across two very disparate fields that very often don't speak to each other. Yeah, no, I actually, I just have finished writing my introduction. My supervisors have okayed it, so yay. But I had to write a methodology section, which is a thing I've never done before in my life. Um, Humanities for the yay. But um, I did write a whole section about what the relationship between law and ethics and, and biological sciences, medical sciences, as distinct fields of inquiry actually is. And one of the things I've loved most about my PhD is it's interdisciplinary in in a real way. I'm not a scientist, but I do read all the papers published by those who are actually trying to build these machines because, I mean, you can't really understand what ethical, what legal questions you have to ask about technology unless you know how it works. And I found that kind of fascinating. Like I did do science A-levels and did really, really badly. And I only went to law school because it was one of the only humanities subjects you can get into without an English or a history A-level. But I just, I, I, I loved in my first year just reading all this rich material about obstetrics and gynecology, complications in pregnancy and then neonatal intensive care and 
these magic experiments which you know have limitations but really are the future did you do any specialist training for that um, i mean we we know we work with methods in manchester and, and quite a lot of discourse analysis and art analysis and thing theory some of the weirder theories that i work with but you, were you did you get the opportunity to do any you know to get the background in clinical studies and how they're run and what the standards are and what you should be looking for in a study god this is so bad no i just deep dived <laughs> <laughs> the same like I, I've tried to go to some of the methods at Manchester thing in first year and like they, they didn't help at all so every time I see training I ignore it which is bad but this I went is to what quite I do. a few that were really interesting but they just didn't quite speak to what I was doing so like the discourse analysis one was interesting and textual analysis was interesting it just wasn't it just wasn't what I'm doing and I went to one interesting about, recently about socio-legal theory which was really great because it speaks a lot to whether law is a source of data, and that's something I've been arguing about recently um, in terms of everyone talks about artificial wombs as, you know, being so beneficial for women and premature babies, but actually, if the law doesn't allow you to use the technology, for example, that could be a real thing, and also speaks to social attitudes about women's role in gestation, the way the law is sort of built up. That's interesting, actually. I'm suddenly thinking, because you're you're doing something um, that very often doesn't happen, is that we develop technologies and they come along and they do all kinds of things to us and and then we have to catch up and say well maybe this is not such a good idea it's really interesting to me that you are actually right on that front line where you're going this is all new and we need to think about it first have you had any pushback from the the science side saying no we want the freedom to to let rip and and star trek this (laughs) No, not yet. Um, But I think that's probably because there are only like three sets of teams currently building an artificial womb. And also I've not suggested anything really drastic yet about whether or not they should do it. I think I take the quite cautious approach, generally speaking, that any initial discomfort to a technology shouldn't stop us from developing it. It's just that we should think about what the uses of that technology are and how we can make it accessible and who gets to use it and when and what. And if the law doesn't quite work, what do we do about that? Because moral panic is a real problem in assisted reproduction. Like everyone freaked out about IVF once they did it. Everyone freaked out about cloning once they did it. Everyone even freaked out about three parent babies, which is a scientifically incorrect way of describing what uh, mitochondrial replacement techniques are. So I guess generally speaking, what happens is scientists develop technology and then we worry about how the law doesn't work or the fact that people can't use it or whatever. And I guess in my PhD, I'm taking a bit of a, a grounded approach to saying, well, this is what the law is now. This technology might be here, maybe not, but might be here in 10 years what can we do now to make sure that when that technology comes along it does good things do you think this is something that that you mentioned that it it seems to be focused on reproduction and that we we tend to let technologies that don't deal with that go Mm. it seems to me um personal experience of being a woman yeah um, that uh anything that's around women's bodies and reproduction and technology either gets tramped on or gets not noticed so it's taken a long time for apps 
in, I've only in the last year, uh, Apple Health has only just started allowing us to track our periods. Yeah. And it seems ridiculous given that, you know, the first people to track anything were women tracking their periods. And yeah. You to do that from the age of 11. Yeah. It seems really interesting. Um, do you think there's more in a, in a broader context to think about pushing back in society, you know, the yeah. way that we treat women's bodies in the law and outside of it. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I didn't even realise, and I've always been interested in pregnancy and the law. I did my undergrad dissertation on it and my master's dissertation. But it's only during this PhD that I realised quite how much of women's bodies is regulated in very strange ways. Like, it's a summary criminal offence to have a home birth Attend where you're attended to by anyone who isn't a registered med- medical professional. Now, I'm not sure people are prosecuted for that, but it's literally written down as a law. It's also, most people don't know that abortion is still a criminal offence. And if you go and get an abortion, even before 24 weeks, it's a criminal offence. It's just your doctor has an excuse and the law doesn't do anything about it. Rather than that just being healthcare, right? Like... It's so strange how much of women's lives are so regulated. And this is just a side note and a bit of a rant, but how little we're encouraged to know so little about our own bodies. That is something, like, my sister was just, she's she's just texting me and she's like, why don't we know about our own body? And it's like, well, clearly, you know, mom told us all, it's like, we know about the reproductive system, but she's like, it's been treated as something shameful either to talk about or yeah. to learn about and that she's like why the heck is that i'm gonna learn about my body yeah we have so many traditions that surround menstruation and vision space mm. as unclean yeah historically and then it feels like you're being inducted into a magical right oh, i deal with ancient magic so <laughs> bring it in like, bring it in um i've got to get it in there somewhere no Every you have to 100 percent. like <laughs> but that's that's the really strange thing is that it's this thing that goes on and it happens every month and yet nobody seems to know what it is even you you're sort of dealing with it you're treated as unclean it's it's a, it's tricky it's messy they make it very difficult for us to make choices about our bodies and certainly yeah. in the last two years i've been presented with that with um, getting a false positive pregnancy test so mm. i discovered just how tricky it is to get an abortion mm. if you need to get one thankfully it was a false positive but they didn't seem to appreciate how distressing that could be. I mean, it's bonkers. I mean, even with all of my training on literally reproductive and sexual health law, I um, had a really distressing incident with a doctor recently where I I, like asked for some help with my long-term reversible contraception and he implied I cheated on my fiancé. And I couldn't believe it. And I was just sat there like, how are you making me feel this small? despite the fact I know that what you're saying to me is inappropriate <laughs> and, and I have all this training about the fact that I know this happens and I know women and pregnant people are treated in a really particular way by the medical profession. Not all of them, of course, but I feel like this and I, and I read about this all the time and, and what happens when it's somebody that isn't me who's made to feel like that too and it just it drives me mad. But um, there are some people out there doing some amazing things on this. Um, I really recently took the time to go to the Vagina Museum in London and it's okay. incredible. It's an amazing, uh, it's like a science communication project and the entire thing is just myth-busting like on everything from periods aren't dirty, it's, it's just blood, to here is why having stained underwear is normal, to here is why 
putting coke in your vagina isn't a contraceptive. So uh, it was it was amazing. <laughs> oh, and they have a giant sparkly uh, tampon. So it's like a tampon with like sparkly sparkly glitter on it. What do they give Chop? Is it like reusable pads? So much cups? amazing stuff. Honestly, I bought a million and one postcards of vaginas that are now all over my house and uh, my desk. What's on display there? I do museums. I'm just wondering, is it like anatomical specimens like in some museums or is it like what are they displaying at the vagina museum so like mostly it's just like exhibitions of of information so like big posters with like you've heard this rumor or you've been made to feel like this and it isn't true but they do have a really good collection of hilarious feminine hygiene products oh okay um, which (laughs) i enjoyed and and i did and i went there like obviously my research interests are, are on this but primarily it's reproduction so i think about the womb in quite a, a limited sense not mm. necessarily like it's the opposite of menstruation right i don't know i i really felt like a lot of feelings you have as a woman get really validated like i used to think and the reason i got into pregnancy and the law was because of everything that i'd read and learned about and and how women are made to feel like their purpose their function i should say female bodies are designed to do what they are and and we're all socialized to think that that's correct and then the law regulates those things i used to think that it was the most vulnerable time in a a female person's life and when you know a female person was subject to the most control but actually i'm increasingly thinking that pregnancy is still this unique thing that we should study and i should take account of but menstruation is also something i mean at the very moment you start to notice that you're female people treat you like you're dirty the very moment you know and you're treated as brave if you soldier through all of the pain and all of the you know the contraceptive the all the hormonal contraceptives yeah i mean i i I was permanently sterilized last year and i think the reason why i got through it and, and i was allowed to do it partly i have to be over 40 they asked me not do you have children do you want them because i don't have children i don't want them but how many children do you have does your partner approve of this very very quickly that the best way to get around all of these was to have my partner right there by my side how awful is that it's your freaking body no i know and and the fact that i had to wait until i was over 40 to make that choice yeah yeah and that there was a lot of discussion over whether family members should you know oh oh you must sad and it's like well, it's all right. My parents have four grandchildren, but, you know, they're not in desperate need. And that that should be the priority. Yeah. And not my body and what I wanted to do with it. And mm. the reason why I did that was I'd been on the depot for a really long time. And I think it was affecting my mental health. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard awful things about hormonal contraceptives affecting people's mental health. And, of course, because there's a struggle with being a woman and going to see a GP there's a struggle with having a mental health problem and seeing a GP and being treated seriously combine those two and you think it was 2000 odd years ago that they talked about the the womb wandering around the body yeah and and, uh, we don't seem to have come very far I mean those those myths prevail until scarily recently like um we've been working in my department there's an amazing group of women all working on projects to do with the womb in in different ways and we've just finished writing a co-authored paper in which we inserted a little joke for all of us about how like I think it was in the 19th century 
doctors thought that if a woman had sex while she was menstruating, the child born would be spurned with evilness and uh, effectively, if nothing else, would have red hair. Oh. And given that two of us uh, <laughs> have red hair, we uh, we inserted the uh, the joke for our own amusement. But all these myths, like, but the point of the paper was just to say that they prevail in very real ways, right? So doctors used to be very suspicious of the womb as something that wandered around. And nowadays, doctors are very suspicious about the womb because they worry about what pregnant people are doing while they're pregnant, right? Yeah. You have interference on everything from your diet to whether or not you drink alcohol to whether you can eat soft cheeses right to whether or not you exercise or how you exercise or random people on the street thinking they can touch you then we sort of you know because we've been thinking about this through time then we come to thinking about the future of technology and we say look actually unless we start reframing the way we think about the womb and a woman's body and a female person's body while they're pregnant right now artificial womb technology might actually do more harm than good because constantly female people seem to be in this battle for control of their pregnancy. There are about six to eight cases a year of forced cesarean section in this country and those kinds of things are just speaking to actually how the artificial womb might increase narratives of the need to control gestation and so we kind of need to re reframe how we think about that now in order to make sure the future is better, really. Because artificial wounds could do amazing things. Can you imagine? And I think about this a lot. I've got a bit of Stockholm Syndrome because I was looking after my brother's baby recently and it was super cute until it cried at night. And then I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> and now I've been away from the baby for like four days. I'm like, I need it back. <laughs> so bad. But can you imagine a world where pregnancy is risky, pregnancy is dangerous? That's not to say it's bad. Some women love it. Some women and non-women are campaigning for the right to gestate. Surrogacy and UTX are gonna change the world long before artificial womb technology does. But alternatives to gestation could change the way we think about bringing babies into the world and the way we think about what risks and burdens female people have to accept in order to become parents or biological parents or parents of babies they've gestated. I think about this all the time, like how amazing it might be to, for example, have a choice if you have uh, cancer during pregnancy and you have to make a difficult choice between your life and your what some people think of as their unborn child or their fetus, or you get a complication like preeclampsia and you have to deliver early and you know neonatal intensive care, you know, is risky and might not work and you might lose your child once it's born. How amazing it would be for women not have to s worry about choosing in pregnancy and instead prioritise their own health because there is this alternative. That's what I think it's great for. And I was suddenly thinking actually of um, cases of pregnancy and disability and how that might open up the possibility of people I'm thinking the case of particularly I know someone with Ella's down loss mm. and that causes incredible stresses on the body and they advise you never to get pregnant mm. and it's very often just told you can't ever get pregnant because you have airless down loss because the pressure on the body and the bones and the, the joints is just going to be too much and so if you did get pregnant and you really wanted to have a 
a baby whilst having Ella's Danlos or, or any other kind of yeah. disability really it might open up that possibility to more and more people who want to be able to be biological parents yeah and you know it wouldn't stop somebody you know with a condition like that carrying their pregnancy for as long as they were able to and then having a means to opt out of it and know that that didn't mean the end of their reproduction um which i think is amazing because i think gestation is something we should talk about more as more than more than just pregnancy and more than just nine months it's an experience it's a relational thing some people love it some people hate it but there are metaphysical aspects to that to birth as well that we don't completely understand and as well as speculating about a potential future one of the things i've loved about this research is that thinking about the way the law works when this technology has arrived actually illuminates a lot about how regressive law is now um, and the only reason it's not a problem is because this kind of technology doesn't exist. But actually, it doesn't mean the law is okay. Recently, uh, I've just had a paper out that argues that it would be really difficult for women to access artificial wound technology without the permission of their doctor. And it would only be in very specific circumstances dictated by law that fit into categories of risk. Now, that seems ridiculous, right? If we have technology that emulates pregnancy and I am in a situation where for whatever reason I don't want to continue my gestation but I also want a child the fact that it'd be a criminal offense potentially um, and it's not certain but it might be a criminal offense for me to opt to transfer my fetus to an artificial womb how much is the law there enforcing heteronormative ideas about what the female body is for? Even if right now that problem isn't a thing, it's still saying a lot about how much gestation is dictated to the female body. It's yeah. incredible, uh, very intense. And now to completely change the mood, <laughs> we always ask our guests if you have a funny story related yeah. to it, which after everything we talked about, um, might be yeah. <laughs> I do, I was thinking about this recently and like, there really isn't anything that funny about women being treated badly and female people being treated badly. Um, so I, I think I have a story from a conference which may or may not be that funny. I'm always conscious when people say tell a funny story that what I think is funny probably isn't funny. So I just went with what's embarrassing. That, that always helps because we're all yeah. out there going to conferences and if you, especially if you're presenting and it's your first time, and yeah. you know, anyone listening is going to be like, yes, I know, it ha it's happened to someone else. Okay. Yeah. So um, a group of us went together, four of us, uh, three other cool women from my department, and we rented a house together um, because we were at a conference in Leeds. One morning I got up and went for a run and then came back and used the bathroom and I got locked in. And it was a very tiny bathroom, like so small, I could barely move. And I didn't even realize I was claustrophobic until this incident, but it was not good. Anyway, thank God, because I'd gone running, I'd had my phone in my armband, but I had to text them. And one of them, bless her, went down into this creepy basement in this Airbnb house and managed to find a toolkit. And it took her an hour, but she she deconstructed the lock. Like, literally, as in, took the door apart on this bathroom. Um, wow. But the entire ordeal was about an hour and a half, and we missed 
the morning of this conference. Um, and I did not have a great time. And then obviously everyone took to Twitter about it and it was quite embarrassing. But, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> I'm going to say, never let, never let it be said that women can't do DIY. <laughs> I know. On the fly I mean, as well. <laughs> she is always amazing me with all of the things that she could do. And taking the lock on the door apart is, you know, up there. <laughs> Once I was doing an internship, I have a similar story. And it was in this old house that was being used for archives and the bathroom had one of those victorian skeleton key locks yeah and so um basically i the lock stopped working and i was locked inside and there was only my male boss (laughs) who was like a very odd person and i had to i think i had to call for him to let me out and it was quite embarrassing also there's actually nothing worse than being locked in a toilet it's, it happens to me all the time and it's just the worst especially when like it's really easy to undo the lock and you're just being an idiot like i think it's one of my special not skills well, we've, all, we've all got them yeah <laughs> we've got something that we just can't do yeah being listening <laughs> to not safe for publication i'm jolie i'm athia I'm Chloe. Thank you very much for joining us. That was fascinating. And remember, what happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. And don't tell your supervisor what we said here. (laughs) Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.